more people die from anorexia than they do from any other mental illness. And that's really important to remember that time is of the essence and your intervention when you are intervening is, is gotta be really, really focused. Hello and welcome to another HG podcast. I'm Jo Baker and I'm part of the HG team. Today I'm going to be talking to our expert Martin Dunn about working with anorexia and why we shouldn't be focusing on food. Martin's a human givens therapist and he's got a successful private practice in a dedicated multidisciplinary holistic clinic and Martin's really got extensive experience working both with groups and individual psychotherapy with young trainees in rehab and currently in Ireland's largest addiction centre. Martin's worked now for over 10 years helping people to overcome trauma and addiction and eating disorders. And we're really delighted to be discussing his work with eating disorders today. Hello, Martin. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, a very good morning to you, Joe. Very good morning. Pleasure. Martin, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you've been doing to help people to recover from eating disorders. Yeah, well, as you said, I've been working for over 10 years as a human givens therapist, and I hold a degree in sociology and a master's in human given psychotherapy. And eating disorders is something, it's, it's almost like in one of our emotional kind of needs is the need to be challenged and stretch ourselves. And this was one thing that was paramount in my mind in coming to eating disorders. And it happened quite by accident is that I work in a place called Carlow, which is about an hour drive outside of Dublin, a little country town of about 40,000 people. And one day uh, a woman just called me and she said, listen, will you see my daughter? She has been diagnosed with anorexia and would you see her? And at first I kind of shied away from a bit because uh, sometimes we can become really comfortable in our work and just go by rota almost is that we feel comfortable in dealing with certain kind of issues and difficulties that people come to us with. And I said, no, I will definitely see her. And the woman was really in a bad way and had tried lots of different kind of avenues with her daughter. So. Her daughter came in and I had a bit of trepidation because I'd never worked with somebody with an eating disorder before. And I was quite shocked. I was quite shocked as this young woman walked in and she had a, a sleeveless t-shirt on and there were gouge marks in her arms and huge self-harming had been going on. And uh, she announced herself by her appearance really as an emaci emaciated young woman and quite fearful and I invited her in. I tried to build some rapport on the way down of the assets and so on, which didn't work. Came into the office. I invited her to sit down and she refused to sit down and looked at me and she said, and what do you do that's different? Gosh. And well, I said, that was a challenge oh, for you, oh, yeah, I said, okay, this is what I do. I'm a human givens therapist. And essentially what we focus on is the unmet emotional needs. And if the needs are out of balance in some way, and also the person's resources. And I just gave her some of the pattern and so on. And she smiled at me and she said, well, okay, then I'll stay for 40 minutes. <laughs> so she sat down and rapport was really, really difficult because, you know, she wasn't interested. She'd been around the houses with different, different um, hospitals and different therapists and different doctors and psychiatrists and so on. 
anyway, I endeavored. And one of the things that instinctively came to me in that session was that when I did mention food, there was absolute resistance and a clamming up almost. It was almost somebody who was really protective of something that they held dear to them. So I soon learned for the rest of that session not to talk about food at all. Anyway, to cut a long story short uh, with this woman, we did make a lot of progress. Now, the kind of thing about eating disorders per se, everybody's different and everybody comes at this from a different point of view and every client is different. And as we know, circumstances alter cases. So it is about being creative first and foremost. And I just really like to emphasize that for human given therapists going in to work with people with eating disorders is creativity and your own life knowledge experience can sometimes be really, really helpful. But being creative, thinking outside the box and never giving up hope and having, having an abundance of patience and tolerance and so on with a person with an eating disorder. Because at the least sign of rejection, they clam up and they won't return. Or criticism, they will not turn up again. So with this young woman, anyway, to ca carry on to finish off that story of why I became interested in this field, is that I felt that I was making progress with this young woman. And she seemed to, I gave her a couple of tasks in between sessions and so on. Outside the box again, going to art galleries, finding a particular picture to focus on, to write down a couple of lines to, uh, about the picture and what the picture meant to her and so on. And those tasks, seemed, she seemed to enjoy those because hitherto her coming to see me, she spent most of her time at home brooding and wouldn't go out and lost all social contact with friends and so on. And any activities were just, were just not there anymore. And I felt this was probably a creative way of getting the person back into getting their emotional needs met for connection to people, for a bit more attention, for something to excite their brains and to focus away from the eating disorder itself. And it worked a treat with this young woman. And I was quite successful. We were quite successful in getting her back to eating in a healthier way. Now, the success in eating disorder kind of work is far and few between. Sometimes all we can do is put a little dent in the thing itself, is to make a little bit of difference. But I'm a great believer in the human givens approach that even one session has laid down the seeds of future kind of harvests. That no matter, no matter how little time you spend with somebody with an eating disorder, it is of great value. And sometimes we as therapists, certainly in my younger days of starting a practice, when somebody wouldn't turn up for a second session, I would get worried and would take it personally. Now it's water off a duck's back. People don't turn up. It doesn't really matter because I know the power of the human givens model and method and the ethical approach that we take to therapy does make a difference to people even in one session absolutely so that, true yeah. yeah pardon me go ahead joe uh, no i was just you know so so true so much can be done um in 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 just one session and it's you know i think like you in the early days i i felt that if somebody didn't come back then you know i couldn't have done a very good job but actually it's not our business to 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 know that and you know quite often people go away and start to do do their own work and that can be that first domino can't it uh -huh. um and it, it might be that then they come back certainly was the case for me that they come back you know maybe even a year later and they've actually got to the point where they are more ready now to do some further work 
Yes, indeed. And it's that kind of freedom that allows people choices because because at the end of the day, I mean, that's what our emotional needs are about. And in particular, our emotional need for control is about choices, isn't it? You know, and and something that's so important for, for people who are, you know, struggling with eating disorders or disordered eating. Yeah. And one of the questions, one of the questions that you had, uh, Joe, was was kind of why do people develop eating disorders? And it's an absolutely brilliant question, you know, and I've thought about that and I've thought, well, actually, what is it? Uh, the same question could apply, I suppose, to people who become alcoholics or people who uh, become drug users, you know, and for eating disorders and in particular anorexia. And a lot of our conversation will be around anorexia, although we might uh, talk about bulimia and binge eating disorders as well. But uh, in particular, anorexia, there seems to be a pattern. Firstly, there's a, there's, a, there's a profile that goes with anorexia. And that is that the, the most, most, of, most of them would, would be young women between the ages of 12 up to, up to 18 or 20. It's different for bulimic. They start a bit later. And... They seem to come from stable, uh, and the researchers are agreed on these, they come from stable home environments. They're really good at school, really bright, into sports, and, and their parents would describe them as model children, not a problem at all. But it seems that when, and the onset of puberty into adolescence, into the teenage years, something happens. Now, for most young people, this time of adolescence into the teenage years can be a difficult time with brain development and physical development and so on. But something seems to happen with anorexic people is that, is that there seems to be an enormous amount of pressure that comes on them. You know, now this would be the same for all women in, in situations of having to match up through the social media, through size zero to the models, to, to the bombardment of the perfect body and so on. But it seems a bit more than that. And it's almost like a dissatisfaction with the body, you know, leading to body dysmorphia, which, which a person looks in the mirror and what they're seeing is not a normal body shape, but rather a fat person, an overweight person, where in fact, in reality, they're average size for their age. And that seems to be a preoccupation with this pattern uh, that drives anorexia. And then this other thing about strained social relationships, seeking to please people, finding emotion, emotions that they feel difficult to, to tolerate, and not coping well with disappointment, never learning the thing about failure in life. It's all about, it's all about perfectionism. And Hilda Bruch, who was an expert on anorexia from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, writes about the fear of growing up almost is that there's an intense kind of fear about moving from that teenage adolescent years into the adult world is that it's just too daunting and we'd rather just freeze it in the moment of of adolescence and the teenage years and again that perfectionism that perfectionism it's almost like a compulsion to be better than everybody else to be brilliant and not dealing with disappointment or setbacks in life. So that is kind of the profile that kind of moves in to creating disordered eating. Mm, you know? 
And I think some, from working in, in universities for, for a number of years now, we've certainly seen a rise in perfectionism um, in, in our young women coming through. Um, and, and with that, a, a rise in disordered eating behaviours as, as well. But also some, some young men coming through as well with, yeah. with problematic you know, eating behaviours, both overeating, undereating. And, you know, the, the concept of, of bigorexia as well, of people needing to bulk up and, and be bigger than the next person that they see. Yes, absolutely. And it's kind of, it's almost like an innate kind of pressure almost, you know, if I'm not perfect enough, I am not thin enough. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like an obsessional kind of thing around this body image kind of thing that's driving the whole the whole process along and then the whole thing around food as well you know and I know we're going to come to the emotional needs and stuff like that and the important kind of thing around emotional needs in relation to this absolutely and you know there's there's so many different types of, of eating disorders as we've discussed but you know all of them are around you know getting needs met in balance at the end of the day aren't they so you know, can, can you tell us a little bit more about how crucial it is to be working in that way with, with people? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a search for identity, you know, where there, it becomes a narrow focus on body weight, shape and dietary restrictions almost. I mean, the research, the research shows that the majority of sufferers come from stable environments, as I said, and the initial weight loss period is often expressed as highly rewarding with increased strength, energy, vitality, in the presence of few uh, negative emotional, psychological, or social consequences. In other words, there's a huge reward going on. And that sense of control over hunger, and then eating, and then the body is a core and central feature of anorexia. And it is highly rewarding. And people quite often get praised as well, don't they, initially? Oh, have you lost weight? You look good. Absolutely. You know, are um, you're, you're, <laughs> Yeah, you're a size zero. You look amazing. You look incredible. And then as the weight begins to drop off to, you know, and then it becomes another source of attention, whether it's welcome or not, it comes from the families then, the loved ones who are concerned and fearful because the weight is beginning to really fall off. And then sometimes the emotional need for security is, is assured by an over obsessive adherence to the drive for thinness through non-eating. So there's almost a security by not eating mm. and, and many anorexics, you know, and this is certainly true in all of all of the anorexic or people with eating disorders that I've treated. They are absolutely obsessed with cooking. They enjoy making meals. They collect recipes. They're absolutely it becomes it becomes like their job 24 seven where they're collecting recipes, looking at cookbooks. Uh, making meals, cooking for other people while not eating anything themselves. And I suspect they're perhaps trying to meet their emotional need for con connection in an unthreatening way that way. And then, of course, the self-esteem then is bolstered by the initial success and accomplished by feelings of being special. The less I weigh, the smaller I get. Mm. And the more control and the mental uh, strength I gain this internal voice begins to take over then. And it's the core meeting abstracted from this pattern. And then there's an addiction process then, addicted to the effect that anorexia has on their feelings, and in particular, the sense of control, or at least over their bodies. 
Mm. Avoiding food becomes then a compulsion that has the same root and addict an addiction. Yes. Yeah, indeed. So when I've worked with adolescents with eating disorders, one of the things that really comes across is the despair of the family, the, the frustration, the terror of not knowing what to do for the best. So, you know, how should you approach the situation if you think that, you know, somebody around you has, is, has developed a, an eating disorder? It, it is a fantastic question, and particularly for parents or caregivers and indeed therapists as well, is that I have a couple of pointers here, which is number one, kind of pick a good time. Choose a time when you can speak to the person without distractions and there's no distractions going on and keep the conversation calm. And number two would be explain why you're concerned and certainly do not lecture. Mm-hmm. Rather instead try, you know, focusing on a specific situation and a behavior and, and kind of saying to the person, listen, I've noticed that this has been happening at such and such a time and I'm just worried. And most importantly is not to offer solutions, but to express concerns about the person's health and how much you love them and how much you desire to help rather than being a lecturer or, yeah. or an expert. And number three, be prepared for denial and resistance, because as we know, with any kind of recovery or any kind of thing around eating disorders is it's a bit like addiction again. It's almost like, no, this is not happening. This is not happening. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. It's almost like in the wheel of change in addiction, you've Mm. got pre-contemplation in which the person doesn't see a problem at all. Everybody else around them can see that it's out of control, but they don't see it themselves and will come up with say, I don't have a problem. So it's, it's almost like for parents and caregivers being, being prepared for denial and resistance of like, you wouldn't understand anyway what I'm going through, you know? And it's like this defensiveness, almost bordering on frustration and anger, you know, in this denial kind of thing. And then furthermore, I would add in trying to start a conversation around this would be a huge amount of patience and support, you know, and standing back a little bit, standing back, not getting drawn in to the little kind of minutiae or the little kind of alleyways and cul-de-sacs, but rather keeping it to a bigger picture all the time that this person is, is on, a, on a journey almost and they've just lost their way somewhere. You know, it's almost like, it's almost, I don't know if you've, if you've seen uh, kind of, well, I have a, a grandchild now and she's coming up to one and she's learning to crawl and she's taking her first tentative steps. Now, when a child begins to take their first tentative steps, you know, or even when they're crawling, we don't, uh, we don't turn around and say to a child that's crawling, come on, get up and walk, can't you? You know, <laughs> we applaud them for every little thing that they do. And then when they take the first steps, we go, oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Well done. That's marvelous. Keep it going there. And the same patience and support that we would apply to a new baby learning how to walk and crawl is the same patience that we would need for somebody uh, to broach the subject of an eating disorder. The same patience, the same kind of thing, the same support. Mm. Yeah. What would your advice be then to those parents who are are at the wits end, who are quite frankly, really frightened of what they're seeing happening to to their child? And 
are wanting to try and coerce or, or to force their child into eating and, and putting sanctions in that if you don't eat this, then this will happen or this won't happen. Because that's something that I've, I've come across and had to work quite carefully with the family, really, around, around that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, is such, it is such a difficult thing because caregivers and parents are absolutely torn apart by this. This is like a bomb going off in the house, you know, and it's like the helplessness and the powerlessness of somebody trying to help another person that they can see quite clearly in their own mind. If only this person would eat, then they would gain the strength and they would have the energy to engage in life, that the focus primarily is on the food. And it is so difficult. And I would never, I, I, I would always try and say to a parent, look, is there, is there a different way of doing this? Is there a, a, a more creative way of doing this? You see, a lot of the, a lot of the treatment centers focus on, on weight gain uh, within the NHS and certainly over here. And a lot of the inpatient facilities focus on uh, getting a person to eat, get those calories back up and so on and so forth. And that is their model. I, I would think for if I was if I was uh, given advice to a parent, I would say, you know, make meal times as normal as possible. Don't make a big issue of it that you have to eat. Do you know, it's almost like children who become picky eaters. There's a huge focus in the early years on children. Oh, you got to eat this and you got to eat that. You got to finish that, and it's almost like that we use unintentionally food as a pacifier and a punishment in the developing years you know and that is that is the culture in which we live in is that we reward we reward good behavior with treats you'll have an ice cream you will have a bar of chocolate because you're such a good good child or no i'm going to deny you a treat because you're being uh, disruptive and you're not being cooperative you're being resistant and it's almost like some of that learning spills into the thing around meal times at home is that the, the pattern matching almost of the, of the person suffering from anorexia is here we go again, you know, I'm being punished here or I'm being rewarded here. It's almost like well, what I would say to parents and caregivers is just put the food down, make meal times as normal as possible. Don't focus on eating or not eating. Just leave it there and carry on with the conversation. In other words, that you're not giving attention for eating or non-eating, if that makes sense, Joe. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah. so the attention really is around the spending time, relaxed time as a family, because for the person who is sitting there, you know, the person with, with the eating disorder who is sitting there in front of the plate of food, their anxiety levels are going to be sky high at, at that point because the food is, is there. In, in front of them anyway. Uh, absolutely. And I'm mindful of the work of Hilda Bruch and I'm a great, she's long gone from this planet now, but she was a real, real um, kind of uh, trailblazer when it came to trying to understand the psychology behind eating disorders. And one of the things that she came up with, which I think is kind of really, really helpful in trying to understand the eating disorders, particularly from a human givens perspective, is that Hilda Bruch had this thing around um, hunger awareness, is that people with an eating disorder, and particularly anore anorexics, is that they have a difficulty in recognizing physiological and emotional sensations, mm. okay? 
In other words, that being angry sometimes feel like, feels like being full, yeah? Being anxious. I don't know if you've ever been anxious, but certainly I've been anxious. And one of the things about anxiety is, is that it catches you right in the guts and right in the tummy, and it kind of locks it in. And it's like restrict, restricting anything that might come in there. And sometimes anxiety can give the signal that the system is full, that no food can come in then. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it's almost like there's a discrepancy between the physiological sensations and the emotional feelings that are going on in the person. And it's just a bit of awareness around that, because if we begin to explore that a bit more, we can begin to distinguish and help a person then distinguish between what is a physiological sensation and what is in an emotion, what is an emotion. And I think that can be really, really helpful for parents and caregivers to understand if we explain it to them in, in a way that they can understand. Yeah. Yeah. Is that this, this is what you're dealing with sometimes you're not it's not as if the person has, has, has suddenly become resistant and so on overnight is that they're as confused as we are sometimes about what's going on in their own bodies so helping them to connect with their bodies and connect with the different sensations because they can quite sometimes become very detached from from any sensations within their bodies and, and uh, not to focus on the body Absolutely, Joe. And this is where the uniqueness of the human givens guided imagery and particularly the body scan from head to toe or toe to head can be incredibly helpful in working with people with eating disorders and particularly anorexia is that you can begin to say, okay, what are the feelings in your feet? Yeah. Okay. We're focusing on our feet now. It's almost relearning the process to focus on what it is to be a physical being as well yeah and that can be incredibly helpful as opposed to feeling the strong uh, fight or flight mechanisms going on in the sympathetic nervous system striking everything off to to a high degree yeah that's, that's the beauty of the, the the body scan isn't it within the guided imagery is that you know you you don't have to focus on body parts that the the client might not want to be focusing on so you can focus on a finger or or the feet as you say so you it can be so sensitively done absolutely and the thing about it is is that a person in that situation is more likely to go with you yeah because it's a safe environment it is a trusting environment and they're getting to know you a bit better and they're willing to close their eyes, which is the most, which is a really uh, strange thing to do in front of a stranger is to let go and, and close your eyes, you know, and just to feel those sensations in the body and just slowly begin to work so that the person is becoming aware of what is a physiological sensation and what is an emotion. Mm -hmm. And that can be incredibly empowering for a person in recovery. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. You, you mentioned the NHS model and approach to working with eating disorders and in particular um, around weight and BMI. And how important is it to actually start working with somebody before they meet the NHS threshold for, for treatment? I would, I would say as early as possible. It's like every organizational system. I have nothing against the NHS and, and their approach or indeed our, our own HSE here in Ireland. But it is a formulaic kind of thing. And it's almost like being given a diagnosis. It's almost like a badge of honor. It is kind of a shield in which people can stand behind and put the, put the diagnosis forward each time so they don't have to engage in services, you know. 
But I feel that before a person, before they even get to the stage of engaging with services, that is the point that I would really like to see people, you know, and, and work through the emotional needs with them. In other words, that you're doing all the groundwork so that they'll never forget that all behaviors are attempts at getting emotional needs met. That in fact, what we're looking at with anorexia, what we're looking at with all the behaviors that go with it are mere symptoms. It's a bit like the, the pebble in a lake and the, the ripples in a lake are only the symptoms. What I'm interested in is the causal factor. What is it that caused those ripples? And that's where the human givens can come in about where, where is this person pattern matching to? Is there any trauma in the background? Is there anything that is maintaining this pattern matching going on? It's a much better time rather than the person being through the system because what happens then is that because the person becomes embedded in the organizational system and they're, they've heard it all before and they know all the tricks in the trade and they know all the language and they know all the kind of rules of the road and the rules of engagement and they've heard it all before. I would much prefer if a person came to me at the onset rather than when it gets really serious for them. And of course, with decreasing BMI, you know, it's associated with lower structural integrity in the brain. So lots of cognitive dysfunction, the lower the BMI goes. So the threshold for, for treatment is 17 and a half. Uh, we're already looking at, at some cognitive impairment going on and much, much more difficult to be working with. You're absolutely right, Joe. So concentration levels are really, really low. Tolerance levels are really, really low. And you notice sometimes that I haven't really talked about the physical symptoms, but the physical symptoms are there for anybody to look up. And they're absolutely awful the more the illness progresses. The hair falling out, osteoporosis, the flaky skin, eyesight beginning to fade, hearing beginning to fade, the internal organs beginning to disintegrate. It is an awful, awful, awful progression until in the end that a person needs full-time care in a hospital to be fed with a tube. You know, it is awful, uh, the, physical, the physical effects of an eating disorder, it really is. And it's been mindful of the fact as well that it's the highest mortality rate in psychiatric services. You know, more people die from anorexia than they do from any other mental illness. And that's really important to remember that time is of the essence and your intervention when you are intervening is, is got to be really, really focused. And obviously for human givers therapists, spare capacity must be there in abundance. It must be there. And it must be the sole focus that when you have that time with that person is that we really utilize that time as much as possible with that person because the stakes are so high for them and their families. Right. And it's a great responsibility it is a great responsibility to be working with people with eating disorders, you know, and it requires imaginative thinking outside the box. Everybody else has, has thrown the stone at this one and nobody has succeeded. Well, some have succeeded in small ways. So be creative, be passionate about what you're doing. Take the person in their holistic kind of thing. What is driving this? What is the causal factors? Is there an intervention I can make here that somebody else hasn't tried? Be creative, be creative, be creative. That's all I can say about working with people with eating disorders is that the stakes are so high.
they are indeed and it's something that you know gareth and i say when we're working with students is it's something to have some like as you said at the beginning of this you know you you want some experience before you start working um with with eating disorders so that you you know you've had some experience and you know you, you've started to develop your your practice and your creativity within that um because the stakes are so high when working with people yeah being certainly certainly what helped me joe my own private work and stuff was going to work uh, in my first two years, two and a half years, I volunteered at uh, an addiction center here in Ireland just to get some experience and get some kind of thing of using the human givens in a mm -hmm. setting that was safe, you know, that I wasn't going into private practice straight away. And that has served me enormously well in understanding the whole addiction process and how slow it can be because one of the things around eating disorders is certainly lapse and relapse. And as we know in human givens is that we don't panic when there's a lapse in addiction and we do not panic when there's a lapse in treating somebody with an eating disorder. What we, what we try and do obviously as human givens practitioners is see a lapse as a learning curve. We see it, what is the person learning from this rather than beating themselves up and throwing the toys out of the pram and going, going back full time to the addiction? What can we learn? What were the circumstances? Was the person under stress? What were the ingredients involved in that lapse before it reaches complete relapse? And you know, working with people with anorexia, once they understand that this is a process, that we don't panic if we have a lapse. We don't, we don't lose uh, all the work that we've done if we have a lapse. What we do is we stop, we, we reconfigure, we have a look, what was causing that, what stresses, what were the circumstances and so on. And what that does is that it takes the blame and the shame away from the person so they can begin again on their recovery plan. And I think that's a really important message. And that's something that I've learned from my work with people in addiction many years ago. It's really good advice, Martin, thank you. Yeah. You wrote an article in the Human Givens Journal um, how, about how you use the organizing idea of Kytexia to treat clients with anorexia. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, 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 have, a lot, uh, I have a lot of time for uh, Simon Baron Cohen in his own way. He's a professor, professor of developmental uh, psychopathology at the University of Cambridge and a leading authority on autism. And this for me, I kind of suspected this uh, kind of thing for a while. It was a hunch, an instinct. I'm a great believer in following instincts. I mean, long before human beings ever had language, we had instincts and sometimes we suppress our instincts. I believe uh, that if you get a strong instinct, it's a really strong thing to listen to. And I, when Joe and Ivan came up with the idea of Kytextia, Kytextia, as we know, uh, refers to context blindness. And when they talk about kytexia, they talk about kytexia being on a spectrum. So on the left-hand side, if you imagine our two hands, on the left-hand side of the spectrum, it's heading more towards the upper limits of Asperger's. And then on the right-hand side, it's more imaginative, heading down to psychosis, right down that end of the, of the spectrum. And I, for a long time, um, having read, having read the work of, of Joe and Ivan around Kytextia, began to kind of look a bit deeper at people with anorexia, as opposed to bulimia. Now, bulimia, as we know, um, is a later onset 
uh, it never becomes dangerously so that the person is losing enormous amounts of weight. It is about, it's about a preoccupation with eating and purging, using laxatives and vomiting and so on. And this cycle, it's almost like a cycle of addiction. You know, it's eating, purging, eating, purging, eating, purging, and so on. It can be incredibly dangerous as well with, you know, heart enlargement and, um, you know, strains on internal organs. That's absolutely true. So with, with, those, with those two um, conditions in mind, a lot of what I was seeing around anorexia, primary anorexia, was a lot of the kind of things that Joe and Ivan were talking about in Cotextia, which is rigid thinking, which is black and white linear thinking, which is a fixation on things, which was off the peg identities, which is a, a strict adherence to rules and regulations and following things through. And also the thing about left brain cortexia is the not having the capacity to read the context of situations. So empathy would be really hard. Uh, rapport building would be really hard with that person. Whereas on the right, right brain cortexia, the uh, association then with the imagination, the problem solving through high emotional arousal association, bringing everything from the past into the present, and it becomes a big emotional soup. And it's really hard to get to the point with somebody with right brain cortexia because it's all emotional and there's no, there's no concrete reality that you can fix on. So with that in mind, I began to do my own little bit of research around left brain and right brain cortexia, just in my own practice. And I've written about this. So alongside this, uh, kind of ideas that I had in my mind came Simon Baron Cohen's work and his thing was about the connection between anorexia and autism and I thought this is revolutionary because it opens up a whole new spectrum in which to look at anorexia it opens up a whole new field of of inquiry that perhaps wasn't looked at before now with Kytextia it has all the symptomatology almost that you would find in the anorexic behavior kind of fits into cortexia. But along came Simon Baron Cohen in 2013 and published this research. And what he did was he compared 66 young females aged between 12 and 18 years of age, diagnosed with anorexia, but not autism. And he compared them with 1,600 teenage girls of the same age who didn't have either. Now, need either a diagnosis of autism or anorexia. And after measuring them all, measuring using autistic traits, using the autism spectrum quotient, they found that five times more girls with anorexia were coming up with autistic traits. Gosh. And autistic traits were repeated and were overrepresented with individuals with anorexia, with uh, anorexia nervosa. And Simon Baron Cohen went on to talk about how the fixation with autism has to do with systems. So if you, if you apply that to anorexia, then the systems then become about body weight, body shape, and food, food intake, calorie intake, and this obsession and fixation on food and on thinness and so on was driven by, he reckoned, by an autistic trait in persons with, or people with anorexia 
So taking his work and taking the idea of Joe Griffin and Ivan Tyrrell's thing around Kytextia, if you were to mesh the two of them together and do something of a little bit of research, which is what I did, which is I looked at in the years, I've seen much more, in the years before I wrote that article, I'd seen about 20 people with eating disorders. 12 of those would have come with primary anorexia. And they most certainly fitted into this autistic kytextic spectrum of the fixed thing, of the obsessional kind of thing around food, of the systems, of the, um, the inability to read the context of a situation. And then what I found then was the other eight with bulimia fell into the category of right brain kytextia, fell into the, the emotional kind of thing, un, unable to find uh, an anchor point in which way they had come to therapy in the first place and was random associations all the time. And that, and that it was an endless kind of mixture and a soup of emotional stuff that they could never get their hands on. And most certainly were looking for solutions outside of themselves rather than doing some work on themselves. So they were interested in all alternative methods of healing of all kinds of stuff outside of themselves, uh, psychology books, self-help books and so on all in a quest to find a solution outside of themselves rather than looking within themselves to do some work. And that's what I have found. And the more I deal with people with eating disorders, the more I am kind of seeing this more and more. With anorexic clients, it is certainly fitting the left brain kytexia category. And with bulimics, it is, it is certainly fitting the, uh, the right brain kytexic category. That's and I, so interesting, Martin. Yeah, I think what it does is for a human given therapist, it opens up a whole new playing for pitch for us now. Okay. We're no longer, we're no longer kind of, we're no longer kind of walking blindfolded in the dark and falling over the furniture. We now have a model and a method in which to stand back and work with a person. And a couple of the things that I would do with a person with, say, left brain cortexia with anorexia is in the first session, we try to keep the subject of food, eating and non-eating out of the conversation. Now, unless the client raises that, I do that for a specific reason, is that they are experts in food themselves. They are experts. There is nothing they don't know about food and recipes and how to cook it and so on and so forth. That is their preoccupation, that is their obsession. And sometimes almost like within addiction as well, when you talk to somebody about their drinking habits, it's almost like they defend it, you know, or they, over, they overestimate the amount that they've drunk and so on and bravado and all the rest of it. And it becomes, it becomes a rabbit hole in the end. And I would never talk about food with a person in a session, never. No, um, they quite often as well. I mean, not not just with the, the recipes and, and the cooking, they quite often come along with a really good understanding and knowledge around nutrition as well. You're absolutely right, Joe, because they're experts. They are experts. It is their kind of focus. It's almost like if somebody wanted to be a mechanic, they would know everything there is to know about an engine, you know, and it's like it's a, it becomes a primary thing in their lives because that is a portrayal of who they are. That is part of their identity is what they do. You know, their identity is built around food. 
so I never talk about food. I, I find it, I find it goes down into a rabbit hole and it ends up in an argument and it ends up with the person kind of saying, well, listen, this calorie and that calorie and this food and there's and so on. And the clock is ticking. Yeah. So I never talk about food, certainly in the first session. And I'm, another thing that I would do is um, empathy doesn't come easily with anorexics. I'm not saying this is carte blanche. I'm saying with most that I've worked with, remember that what I'm talking about today is my own lived experience with people with eating disorders. It's cer certainly not a general rule for most people. It's just those that I've worked with. And empathy didn't, didn't come naturally to them. So building rapport then can be really, really difficult. First of all, the client sometimes doesn't want to be there. They've been pressurized sometimes to be there by their family or a GP. So what I would do to aid rapport with the person is look for a point of interest, some subject that they're enthusiastic about. This adds greatly to rapport building and helps the person uh, disengage from the anorexic, if only briefly. And once a point of interest is established, it's helpful to listen and show interest without in interposing comments. So if somebody's interested, this is the thing about human givens about keeping up to date with the news and music and so on. I'm of an age where I struggle to keep up to date with the latest music and fads and uh, technology and stuff like that. But I, I do my best. So it's kind of tuning in. All right. And tell me about that. All right. And what's that like? Would that be a bit like that? And so on. Now we're off. Yeah. Now we're off and we're building some kind of rapport and we're building some kind of empathy kind of thing going on. And we're showing an interest in the person, something other than we're showing attention to something other than that are anorexia, you see. So, we're, so we're important as a, a therapist to be curious, isn't it? And, you know, um, your, your client really doesn't care what you know until they know that you care. That's it. That's it. That's it. So it's, it's that curiosity then. It is, it is bringing an amazing amount of curiosity into everything. It's like that Colombo thing, you know. How does it work? What is this? You know, and well, how does that work? And what I would do then during information gathering is to try and get a picture of the, how the client interprets their world. Yeah. In other words, to enter their model of reality again from a human givens perspective and see how they see the world and to concentrate and to focus on the here and now. Asking about interests, you know, again, keeping that thing going asking you about their sleep patterns, dreams that they might have had, all the thing about the information gathering and what they're interested in, and gently, gently, gently moving it on. Of course, what is accessing their resources at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And another thing as well is, is when we're using metaphors and reframe, particularly with left brain cortexic people and which anorexics would fall into that category, is to be careful about reframes and metaphors. It's best to spell out specific steps for someone. Yeah. Particularly if their brain works in the concrete, if, if their brain works in concrete facts and little access to the imagination. So for example, think about the flower seeds. What would you do with the flower seeds? You get the pot, putting the compost into the pot, opening the seed packet, taking out the seed, pressing your fingers down into the compost, placing the seeds in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now I've used the daily chart on this as, a, as an exercise for people as home kind of uh, work that they would do as well. So it's specific concrete examples of homework, specific concrete examples 
of metaphors and reframes. Yeah, yes. it cannot it cannot be nebulous because the brain of a left brain person doesn't work that way. It sees systems, it sees concrete one step following the other, and so on. Yeah, and then again, the power of utilization. Going back to what you were talking about about resources, uh, Joe. Whatever the person brings to therapy, uh, and if they're great cooks and experts at collecting recipes and so on. Ask them about that. That's a valuable resource for setting a task, isn't it? Yeah. Great. Yeah, absolutely. And can get needs met, like going to the library to look up something specific, like I did with that woman in the very first session of sending her to an art gallery to look up a specific picture and to record it and to write some notes on it. That they are concrete examples of using the obsession around cooking and so on. I knew she would go because it was a specific instruction. Which, of course, you can rehearse as well. If you're, if you're at all unsure, you could rehearse that behaviour, rehearse the task in, in the guided imagery. Yes, absolutely. And what I found with left-brain cortexic uh, clients as well is that gentle humour can, can be really, really handy in, in situations, you know, like the my friend Jane's or the my friend John's kind of thing and kind of making, making a mess of them almost, you know, of self-deprecation, you know, yeah, you know, and, and bringing bringing a gentle bit of humor into it and try and get them. Because as we know, laugh, laughter is a great medicine, you know. And the thing about goals with left brain kytexic people is I would never use the term goal. I would always use the, the, the idea of an experiment, an experiment, which hints at collaboration and room to maneuver. Yeah. So rather than a specific goal, I would talk about, well, let's try it as an experiment. How about that? We shall try it as an experiment. Now there's two of us involved in this, you see. Mm. Yeah. And I find that works really, really well, rather than specific goal targeted uh, outcomes. Martin, that is absolutely fantastic. It's been, it's so interesting and so insightful. Everything that we've we've covered today um, I've I've learned so much um, from from talking to you um, and it's it's an area that I've worked in for for quite a while so I'm I'm so appreciative and I know that all of our audience will be as well um, covering such an important topic uh, today but unfortunately we are out of time we will include a link to uh, the article that you wrote in uh, the podcast description panel and for our, our listeners, if you would like to discover anything more about the Human Givens approach, including our psychotherapy training workshops, please do visit uh, humangivens.com forward slash college. Um, and thank you, Martin, so much for joining us today. Oh, you're, you're very, very welcome, Joe. And um, it's been a pleasure. And maybe one day we shall return to this because there's a whole other field opening up around eating disorders which is elderly uh, anorexia. And there's a huge amount of research uh, being done on that at the moment around older people in our community developing anorexia. Martin, but that is a feeling that we could record many podcasts <laughs> in this area. There, there's so much uh, to cover and it would yeah. be absolutely delightful to revisit this um, at a later stage. Thank you everybody for listening. Until next time, goodbye.